All right, so our first one that we're going to look at tonight is competence, all right? And competence just means our kids knowing how to do something, right? Having, being able to contribute. So um, developing your child's competency first involves helping him create a pro-work attitude. So you need to provide an environment in which he can internalize the reality that work is good, it's important, it's expected, and he needs to make friends with work early on in life and understand that it's just as much as part of his life as friends are and fun are and entertainment, okay? And where is he going to develop this pro-work attitude? How's that going to come about? Our attitudes towards work. In every area of character development, you will see that as parents, modeling is is at the very top of the list. They're going to monkey see, monkey do, right? They're going to see us and how we act and how we react to life, and they're going to form their values and opinions based on that. So um, where are they going to get a good work ethic? Where are they going to learn to love work and to appreciate work? It's going to be from us. Um, and, And one of the uh, things I appreciate is I've watched a video series called The Truth Project, and at the very end of that, he talks about work. And I never saw it this way, but I guess it's kind of obvious if you even think about it a little bit. But God is a worker. Like, he worked for six days, right? And then he rested on the seventh. So work comes from God. Work is not a part of the curse. <laughs> God worked before the curse. And so um, we are meant to work, and it's not, it's not a bad thing. God delighted in his work. He saw that it was good. And then he rested an appropriate time, and he's called us to do the same. So we are being Christ-like when we work. Um, God creates God is expressive, he is masterful, he is excellent in all he does. And so in each of these ways, when we are like him, we display his glory. We are, we are taking part in his nature when we do these things. Something to keep in mind with competency with work, though, is that uh, your child's love needs are not tied to her performance. And we talked about this, I think, a little bit a couple weeks ago. So um, the way they perform in work tasks is not a matter of, you know, our love for them. If they do, they can do poorly and we don't, we don't withdraw love from them. But love and approval are two separate things. And it's very appropriate to say to your child, I love you, but the way that you're doing this task that I've given you to do is really not measuring up. And that's not um, taking away love, but love and approval are two separate things. So that's always... Um, helpful to remember. And it helps kids. Some of these things that it seems like we're shying away from in the culture today um, are actually really good things. Things like being graded on your performance, competition, uh, challenge. All of these things are good for our kids. Um, Because when we're graded on our performance, it means that they experience success and failure. And when they fail, they have to learn, um, just like we all do when we fail, right? We have to uh, experience that and, and compensate, okay? So this didn't work. What do I have to change? What do I have to do differently um, so, that, so that I can succeed next time? It helps them um, monitor their ways and make necessary corrections. Uh, being graded on your performance helps reinforce responsibility and punish slothfulness. So I don't think there's anybody in here probably who would say, yeah, I just hate that my kid gets grade report cards. That's just dumb. I don't think anybody would say that, right? But when it comes maybe to um, competition and challenging, some of those things are a little bit maybe more sticky. 
But 1 Corinthians 9.24 says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you will win. And so competition by nature is a good thing because it, it calls out the best in us. It requires us to up our game. It teaches us about um, team cooperation, about goals and motivation, and different things like that. So um, when we're talking about being competent in an area, competition is not a bad thing. Um, competition, however, should be kept for, for later years. We don't want our four- and five-year-olds necessarily steeped in really serious competition. <laughs> but as they get older, they can, um, you know, rise to that a little bit as their maturity increases. Um, modeling will help your children not uh, to develop not only a desire to work, but to know how to do it. If you want a child who is on time who finishes tasks, who follows instructions, what? We have to be that person, right? And we want kids who are on time and finish their tasks and follow instructions and work cheerfully, right? The Bible says that we should do everything without complaining. If we want kids who work cheerfully, (laughs) we have to be uh, parents who work cheerfully, right? In our first session, someone said that one of their goals was to discover their children's God-given gifts. And I think this is huge. So we would all agree, yes, that God has given gifts, both physical and spiritual, to our children. Is that we're pretty much all in agreement there, right? Then shouldn't one of our greatest jobs as parents be to discover and to cultivate those gifts? If God put with care and design a gift or gifts in your child that he wants to use to bless them and to bless the world through them, then what kind of premium do you think he places on us figuring out what those gifts are and fostering them, nurturing that gift? So, tell me, what gifts has God placed in your children and what are you doing to foster those gifts at this time? I'll give you a second to think about it because it's a toughie. I'm not even sure I could answer the question for my own children that much. So take a minute to think about what are some gifts that God has put in your children and what are you doing currently to foster them or to look for them if you don't know what they are. Laura, you got a good answer back there? If you know John Marks, I'm going to be really impressed. To find on it, I've been praying for because I, I told the Lord, God, I don't want to run around, you know, every direction chasing all these different things. I want a well-rounded, you know, I want well-rounded children, but I don't. I don't want to be gone every day of the week, you know, on um, sports and music and, you know, this, that, and the other. Lord, would you please show me what you have for my children so that we can really direct our energies towards the things that you have put in them. Not that there's anything wrong with having a well-rounded child who can do many things. Um, But for me personally, I'm just like, I I really don't want to spend my days running, you know, from here to there to the next place to the next place. Um, 
So that's been my prayer. And one of the things that I've had a hard time with that I've, you know, admitted to a couple people is I have three girls and Mia, my first is she's very intelligent. She's athletic. She's musical. She's got a lot of gifts. She loves people. She's outgoing, you know, so, um, so the challenge for me is to not pour all of my energy into Mia and forget that I have two other girls behind her who are just as precious, just as special, just as gifted, even though their gifts may not be as readily apparent as Mia's are. So, um, so for me, that's, that's been a big challenge because Lena is very much not like Mia in, in so many ways. And, uh, she does have so much to offer, but it's just, it's going to probably take a little bit more pulling from me, um, as opposed to just it's way out there and, and ready to be observed. So, um, I don't know if that helps anyone. Does anyone else have anything they want to share about their children, their gifts, um, what they're doing to help foster gifts in their children? (laughs) All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for those who have shared. All right. So just a couple cautions in that area. Don't center your child's life around their gift because that just is bad on a whole lot of levels, right? Your, your children have gifts and they may be prolific. They may be like really great at whatever they're doing. So encourage that and foster that, but don't, you know, we know of, maybe we don't know, we know of parents who have made their child's life or their whole family's life around one child's gifts. And that can create a kind of child that, you know, people don't want to be around that can, uh, upset, the lack of balance in your family. So that would be a caution and not to idealize your child. Don't put them up on a pedestal. Um, you know, children are already so impressionable. They're already dealing with, um, their self-esteem with ideas about, um, entitlement and dishonesty and irresponsibility. So we don't want to foster those things any more than necessary. So we don't want to put them up on a pedestal, but just, you know, help them to be on the level of reality. And the last thing I want to say about competence is that um, work is a great servant, but it's a poor master. So I thought that was a great statement. Um, Work is a great servant, but a poor master. So we want to teach our children to be competent, to be able to work, but not to be workaholics because um, nobody's happy in that scenario, right? And most people, um, from what I've been reading, Work workaholism is um, just shows that there's problems in other areas. Usually, healthy people that are well-rounded, that are emotionally fulfilled, and that um, are are kind of healthy in all areas of their life, don't devote themselves to work in a way that's unhealthy. Um, and God would not have us to do that. So, that's the last thing about uh, competence. All right, we're going to move on to uh, morality. Who can tell me why? I mean, maybe it's obvious because we're in church, right? But why do we teach morality? <laughs> Anybody? Why do we teach morality? And where, where does it come from? The word. Okay. So they have respect for themselves, for others, for God. Okay. Yes. I would say that morality that we teach is rooted in the character of God. Okay, and so um, as Christians, I think it's important for us to understand, but maybe even more so for someone who's not a Christian, that it's really hard to teach morals apart from Christ, right? Because morals come from Christ, 
and outside of him, there's no reason to live a moral life. Um, you get into the whole big philosophical debates if you want to go down that road, <laughs> right? But, uh, I mean, Christ is the reason that we have character, that we have morals. And so, um, so morality is, is really important. They're a reflection of the character of God, and apart from a fear of God, there's not much of a leg to stand on with regard to morals. But before a child can decide to do good, he must be conditioned to do good. All right? Before a, a child can decide to do good, he must be conditioned to do good. You know, the Bible says that we are all sinful from birth, right? That we're born into sin. So we have this sin nature that's present with us, you know, throughout life. But... Uh, unhindered, unchecked, that sin nature will create a monster, right? So it's our job as parents to be that outside voice that's checking them at, at every point, right? After they hit about the age of one, we're going to start checking them. We're going to start setting those limits um, because we don't want a monster on our hands, right? So so we condition them with limits, Um as he grows through the care and nurturing of diligent parents, he can and will learn. And this requires, again, much patience, right? Much diligence. Um, we can't be lazy. We can't be lax because this is, this is important. Um, so as parents, it's kind of our job to worry, but we need to make sure that we're worrying about the right things. So here's some things that we want to worry about or that we want to keep in mind. We want to um, make sure that they develop a conscience, we want to uh, make sure that that conscience has the right tone and that it has the right quality and content, okay? So those are the things we're going to talk about with regard to morality. So when we talk about a conscience, what we mean is that they develop a moral awareness of what right and wrong is, what is right and what is wrong, okay? A conscience has to do with developing an inclination to do what is right. So we want to teach them the difference between right and wrong, Give, that they have an inclination to do the right thing and that they experience internal consequences if they do something wrong, all right? So that's the goal of more moral character development is that they will have internal consequences. So our job as parents is to start with external consequences, right? When they do something wrong, we are going to provide those limits or those consequences for them. But the goal is that they will internalize. What's outside becomes inside, right? And they're going to take those things in, and eventually your voice and God's voice are going to be the ones in their head saying, oh, better not do this. Oh, that's not a good idea. Um, and, and so they will internalize, internalize that structure. Um, setting limits from the very beginning, like I said, around the first year, and that's about the time that they need to bump into limits and learn that they will suffer something um, if they do not respect our no. So when we say no as a parent, it's a good thing, right? We know this, not, not news. It will guard your child's life for the rest of his days. The content will change over the years. Eventually, he will be able to cross the street, yes? For example... <laughs> But the no the toddler receives for crawling too far is the same no that he will hear when he contemplates cheating on his spouse. Don't crawl out of the yard changes to don't cheat on your spouse. The function is the same, still hears that no, but the content is different. What is important is that the child is learning the value of no early in life and that he's learning to respect it. So that's part of our job as parents, right? To introduce no and to make it appropriate in their lives with with consequences. All right. The Bible says in Proverbs 5:23 that he will die for lack of discipline 
led astray by his own folly. So if we don't uh, give appropriate no's, if we don't set appropriate limits, then we are becoming party to our child's destruction, according to Proverbs. And next week especially, we're going to be reading a lot of the Proverbs, because <laughs> it has a lot to say about discipline, right? So we need to set limits early, but not be too rigid. As we talked about, um, freedom is a part of the process all along the way. So we remember that Adam and Eve, how many rules did they have from God? Like one, right? <laughs> Don't eat from the tree that you're not supposed to eat from. So if we have too many no's, if we make too many rules, then our no's won't mean anything, right? So, um, you know, it was like when we talked about the universal rules and the specific rules, we don't want to have so many little rules that it's just overbearing and uncomfortable. Um, but we want our no to mean something. So I know I remember when uh, the girls were younger and life was pretty exasperating to astronomically understate the case. And Carlos came home one day, and one of the girls was doing something that she wasn't supposed to do. I don't remember what it was. But um, he said, well, why don't you just say no? Why aren't you correcting this? <laughs> and I remember thinking, because if I said no to everything that each one of them does wrong throughout the day, I will do nothing else. I will do nothing else. <laughs> and she will hate me, and I will hate me, and we will both be miserable. So, you know, you do have to pick your battles along the way, right? There's different things at different stages um, that we will hit, and different times, you know, you can let something go for a moment if it's not, like, a major issue <laughs> because you don't want your child to hate you. You don't want to hate you, right? So we don't want to be fighting all day. We're going to pick our battles. Uh, Proverbs 13.24 I'm sure we're all familiar with this one. He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. So we're going to be careful because rules without enforcement teaches your child what? That they are above the law and that morals are suggestions. He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. All right, so, and some of us have a hard time with discipline for different reasons. Um, the questions you need to ask yourself is, can you have limits? Can you have limits with yourself? Can you set limits for your children? And then can you follow through? And if you have a hard time with any one of those areas, it's okay to ask someone for help, to let someone know and get suggestions. How do I deal with this? Can I, can I have limits on myself? Can I set limits for my children, and can I follow through? Because if you don't do these things, then, then they won't have appropriate limits. All right? So, um, so we, we need to be concerned that they develop a conscience. We need to be concerned with the tone of the conscience. All right? So an angry conscience cannot be used by your child. It becomes his adversary. It's like an internal machine gun waiting to murder his spirit anytime he makes a mistake. An angry conscience is not a good thing. So there's two ways of living. The tone of the conscience can either be under the law or under grace, which is like walking in the spirit. Under the law, rules we must obey or we incur wrath, condemnation, loss of love. We fail and are bad and become alienated. This is what happens when we're under the law. This is reality in our lives, you know, in our spiritual life. This is reality for your child. The focus when you're under the law is on performance to regain love and not feel so bad. So the tone of the law is angry, adversarial, harsh, condemning, guilt-producing, alienating, 
and you perform uh, in order to gain love. So that's the tone of the law. Nobody wants to live under law, do we? No, no. We'd rather be under grace, right? Uh, while grace agrees with the content of the law, right? So the grace and the law, they don't disagree about the content, about what's there. Rules are good, but grace has a different orientation. Grace does not possess wrath, anger, condemnation, alienating, guilt, loss of relationship, or things like that. Grace is for the child, not against him. So the tone of grace would be love, nurturing, Grace is on the same team as the child. Grace is forgiving. Grace is connecting. Grace is empowering. Grace sees performance as being motivated from a loved place rather than trying to perform in order to gain love. So the law gives us direction, but the spirit of grace gives us power. All right. I'd like to read a couple examples for you. This is another book. I haven't really done much from this book yet, but this is um, To Train Up a Child by Michael and Debbie Pearl. And so um, he tells about an incident when he was younger. He says, I can remember an incident that occurred when I was only four years old. Several of us young kids about the same age were walking along behind a row of houses when one of them suggested that we throw rocks at a basement window. I can still remember my thought process. As I considered doing it, I saw my daddy's face. He never told me not to break windows, but I knew that he wouldn't be pleased. I had no law to go by, but I had my father's presence to guide me. It was not the fear of punishment or scolding that motivated me. It was the fear of losing fellowship with my father that led me in the path of righteousness. To please him and enjoy his favor was my strongest impulse. I withdrew from the window-breaking party and walked in my father's light. And so that would be, that would be an example of grace. It's the power that his father showed him through relationship, to do the right thing. His dad had never said, don't throw rocks at windows, but he knew that that's not something that would please his father, and he didn't want to lose his father's favor. So he, under grace, decided to do the right thing. So the tone of our conscience will determine to some degree whether your child will follow it. You can build morals within a child, but the tone of their conscience is of, if the tone of the conscience is of the law, they will ultimately not follow it or they will break their backs trying to satisfy it. Okay, so the law increases sin and it creates wrath, but that's not what we want for our children. So we want to lead them with the tone of grace. And then it takes two parents, right? It takes two parents who are on the same page to create this conscience that's not um, divided, right? If you have one parent who's leading from the tone of the law, angry, alienating, wrath, all of that, and you've got one parent who's leading under grace, who's loving and nurturing, we kind of talked about this before, it doesn't work well for the child, right? Because then that child is going to develop a split conscience, and they're going to have one part of them that says, oh, it's okay, go ahead and do whatever, go ahead and spend all that money, go ahead and, you know, whatever it is, and the other part of them is going to be the strict, harsh one, right? So after they spend the money, then they're going to feel really bad about it and punish themselves and say, you know, you're just evil and I can't believe you did that. And then after a period of deprivation, the kind side's going to come back and say, oh, look at you. You're so sad. You should go spend some money so you can feel better about yourself. And then, you know, and then it's a cycle that continues. So um, it's really important that uh, both parents are kind of on the same page in, in the tone and the way they, they lead their children. <coughs> 
So it's not just that your child has a conscience, but that the, his conscience is his friend. It must be loving, correcting, and also empowering to do the right thing. We want their conscience to be strong, but kind, and serious, but compassionate. All right? So that's the tone of the conscience. So we had that it's important that they have a conscience, um, that the tone of the conscience is good, and also uh, the content and the quality of the, of the conscience. So again, you know, at, at the beginning, we might say, uh, Johnny, don't touch the stove, right? But for your teenager, it may be if you don't cook dinner, you're not going to get to go to the movies, right? Um, so the content changes over time, but we're not going to get caught up in the small things, making the small things absolutes. Uh, a few things to keep in mind. The final outcome of moral training is love, okay? Love is the entire, the entirety of the law, right? What, what are God's commands to us? We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And who else are we to love? Our neighbor as ourselves. So the whole of the law is love. So when we're teaching morality, we want to teach it with love as, as the basis, right? So how are your child's actions, behaviors, and attitudes affecting God and others? Let's not just give them the rule and say, just don't do it because it's sin. But why? Why is it sin? What is it in the nature of God that this thing they want to do, whatever we're talking about, is counter to? How does this hurt God? How does it hurt people? So, you know, we I was raised, many of us were raised with, is a because I told you so, or... You know, that's why. <laughs> but that's not necessarily the way we want to raise our children, right? Let's, let's give them the why. Let's tell them the reasons behind it. So what are some of the um, moral character development? What are some of the, the areas that we want to see character development in our children? That's a, not a rhetorical question. What are some, some areas that we'd like to see character developed in our children? Relationship with the opposite sex. All right, great one. So in what ways might God be affected if they do the wrong things in the relationship with the opposite sex? Yes, or the relationship with God. I mean, sin separates us from God, right? Yes. Um, that that we would seek to um, to please our own selves rather than trusting God. That's hurtful to God. What about to the young woman that he or she he may be involved with, or the the other person? I guess. What about them? How are we hurting them? the other person maybe by taking something that's important to them maybe by not considering their future spouse how about himself or herself the one who's not acting correctly in relationships with the opposite sex are they doing anything to themselves yes the bible says that all sin a person commits is outside the body except him who sins sexually sins against his own body. We're hurting ourselves. Okay. What's another area? Is there another area you can think of where um, we might want moral character development to be 
put in, to be developed in our children? Honest? Yes. Does it hurt their relationship with God when they're not honest? Yes. Does it hurt others? <laughs> yes, it does. All right. What about being on time? I mean, that's kind of a simple thing, right? But is being on time uh, something that honors God or honors other people? I think it is. So they just, I got an example here. Children need to be on time for dinner. Is that because there's something inherently wrong about eating at 7.30 rather than 7 o'clock? No. But if little Johnny decides that he doesn't want to come down when dinner is ready, he makes everybody wait for him, right? And so it's completely appropriate to tell little Johnny, listen, your tardiness affects all of us, but it's, I'm not going to let it affect all of us anymore. Your tardiness can affect you. We will eat at 7 o'clock when dinner is ready, and whenever you decide to get down here is what time you can eat. If your food is cold, your food is cold, right? So, or there won't be any left for you, yes, as is the case in Laura's household. <laughs> you know, but again, that's reality consequences, trying to teach them about reality. This is the way it works. Not everybody in the world is going to wait for you when you can't be there, when you're expected to be. Kindness. How does calling your sister stupid affect her? You know, how does it, how does, how do you feel when people call you names? And so again, these are things about their character that we would like to develop in them. Um, but let's make it more about just because I said so or because God says it's sin. But there's real reasons. We love people. We love God. And so that's why we do these things. Um, a big one for me is manners. Being on time is part of manners. But we don't just have manners so that our kids can look good and we can look good in front of other people um, because kids who have manners do look good. But that's not why we do it. We teach our kids manners because the Bible says that we should consider others better than ourselves, right? And so we, we want to build that into our kids, into our children. Consider others better than yourself. Say thank you. Say please. You know, um, don't reach across the table. Don't, you know, hold the door for people. All these things, they're, they're nice and they consider others. All right. So um, one thing we keep in mind is that the final outcome of moral training is love. And the next thing, second, morals are to protect our lives and to ensure a good life. Uh, morals are not killjoys, but they are the principles that undergird success in life. I think we have up there um, Deuteronomy 6. I didn't print it out on mine. So in the future, here's, here's why we have, uh, we teach morals. We teach the laws of God. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. I think there's one more. Yes, because th it's important. <laughs> the Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God, so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he commanded us, that will be our righteousness. So we teach our kids to obey the laws of God because God commands us to do it. 
other places in Deuteronomy, but so that uh, we can be blessed, so that we can be favored. And as your children get older, you can teach your children the principle of wisdom. Wisdom teaches that there are positive and negative reasons for any moral law. We talked about this a little bit last week uh, when we talked about reality. The positive one is that life works best for us when you live it as designed as it was designed, right? That's our natural law. Use things in accordance with their nature. So when you're diligent, it leads to success. When you have courage, you do new things, right? The negative reason is that life does not work when we don't do it the right way. So uh, lying, as Enid said, destroys relationships. Drugs fry your brain and ruin your life. Sleeping around can kill you, and cheating can land you in jail. So these are, you know, God ordained his universe to work in certain ways, and uh, it, it works that way. Um, again, modeling. I don't think I need to say it again. <laughs> we want to be who we want our children to be, right? All right, so let's move on to um, spirituality. And we've said this before, we can't guarantee that our children will want to seek God, right? But we can lay a foundation that makes um, God and, and his presence and his ways appealing to our children. So our task is to do background work for our children to encounter God. All relationships, including one with God, have structure to them, and creating structure is something that we can do. In other words, you can create a context that fosters connectedness to God. So we talked about our garden, right? Our, our children are, are like our black raspberry plants that we want to grow and we want to nurture and we want them to be healthy. So we're just going to provide the things that they need. And chances are they will grow to be healthy. Now that's not a 100% guarantee, but if we do the things that we're supposed to do, then chances are in our favor that our children will grow up the way that they are supposed to, to grow up. Um, again, no guarantee but we do what we're, we're supposed to do. Keeping in mind that the gospel is attractive, right? God's ways are good, and we don't have to add anything to them. We have to do our part, but God's ways and his word are attractive. His word is powerful. It's effective. And so uh, we can trust it to do its work if we let it do its work. We said, remember, uh, a few weeks ago, we said, remember, and everything uh, natural be as spiritual as possible, and in everything spiritual, be as natural as possible. I think we said that around week two, and that's going to be a big key in developing spirituality for our children, um, helping them to see the eternal in everyday life. And so our children need to ex experience how we interpret circumstances from a transcendent viewpoint, okay? So um, say little Johnny is having a hard time with a friend in the neighborhood or say that he wants something that you just can't afford or, I mean, any sort of, of example. Um, how can he apply what he heard at church to what is happening at school? So all of these are examples of how do I apply um, my view of God and, and my relationship with God to everyday life situations, and how can I help little Junior, little Johnny, to do the same? Okay. On another level, help your child to experience that rules in both the unseen and the seen worlds are familiar. Principles such as love and faithfulness and honesty and ownership work in both the spiritual realm and in the physical realm, right? They are how God governs reality, and God is not in conflict with himself. 
So as you order your child's experience to follow universal principles, she is aligning herself to approach God. So, for example, if you model vulnerability and truth-telling in your relationship with your child, then it's going to be easier for her to understand scripture that says that we should tell the truth in love, right? So when we, when we order our lives around um, truth that is both physical and spiritual, then we are helping our child, our children, to make the jump to a relationship with God that is much easier, it's much shorter than if we didn't order our lives um, the way that God asks us to or in accordance with his universe. I don't know if that makes sense. But we want our, our kids' leap to faith in God to be as short as possible because we have created an atmosphere that makes sense and is in line with his word. Another thing that's important with spirituality is to know what you believe, right? So why do you go to church? Why do you believe that God's word is authoritative, that it is true and accurate and good and perfect? Why don't you do drugs, why is it bad to have premarital sex? Why don't we listen to certain things or watch certain things on TV? We had this conversation with my kids the, the other night, and it was a pretty good conversation. But in order for you to teach your kids those things, you have to know those things. So one thing is to become familiar with, what do I really believe? And it's a great time to ask those questions because your kids are going to be asking, and if we don't have an answer, then it's less than inspirational for them to have that relationship with God, right? So uh, you want your child to continually look beyond rote responses like God says do this, God says don't do this, into the deeper truths behind the commands. Talk to children about why you believe what you believe and get them to think about the reasons for their own belief. Another important thing is to, spare, to not spare your children the struggles of faith, right? If we give them all the answers and we tell them how to do everything, then they don't own it. It's not theirs. But if we let them experience for themselves who God is and, you know, deal with their own uh, struggles, of course, we're there, to, we're there for them, but we're not giving it all to them. If we allow them to experience those things by themselves, then it, then it becomes theirs. Um, so every child, I thought this was a great quote, every child does not have an obligation to ask every question, but every child has the obligation to ask every question he has. And I think that's important for us as parents to allow our children to ask the questions that they have about God, about faith, about the Bible. Um, and to do that takes courage for parents because we have to know what we believe. <laughs> if we don't know what we believe, it's a little bit scary when our kids start asking us why, right? But when we're about it and we have confidence and faith in God, and um, then we can handle. We can handle that, right? Let her see that a relationship with God, just as a relationship with anyone, takes time, has conflict, and requires work. And, and even more importantly, let her know that you are not perfect. Okay, if we want our children to follow God, if they think that we're perfect and we have it all together, then that's, they're not likely to come to us with their questions and with their doubts and their fears. But if they know that mom struggles like I do, and the older they get, the more they can know about those struggles, then they'll, they'll be more willing to come and more willing to um, feel like this journey or this end of Christ is achievable. Does that make sense? There's one major difference in your child's relationship with you and with God. Your role of a parent is temporary. Their role, uh, God's role, is not 
So while you are helping your child to need you less, you are helping him to need God more. While you are helping your child to need you less, you are helping him to need God more. So important. All right, and so we've talked about freedom and responsibility. Make sure that your child knows that his, de- that his decision to follow Christ is not a matter of love and acceptance for you. So you're going to love and accept your kid no matter what they decide about Christ because they need to have the freedom to make that decision. If they feel like you will withdraw your love and your acceptance of, of them when they choose not to do it your way, then they're not really free to make that decision because a child who loves his parents will do what they need to please their parents, right? But we don't want them to please us. We want them to please, I mean, yes, we want them to please us, but ultimately we want them to seek the favor of God, um, not because we said so, but because that's what their desire is. So we love and accept them anyway. And that that um, mirrors God. All right, so there's a few other. Does anybody have any questions? Morality, spirituality, any issues you're facing you want to bring up? Anything I didn't make sense on? Just a lot of talking, talking, talking. Yes, Laura. I think they would say to be open with it. And no, I think they would say at age-appropriate times. And you have to be discerning (laughs) to know those things. But, um, you know, I think that if you're going to be real about the choices that you've made, you have to be real about the other things that come along with it. I have a hard time believing that there's someone who made those sorts of choices that didn't suffer some sort of consequence. Um, and I, and I would say you need to be real about the consequences. So yes, God redeems our bad choices. I know, you know, we know tons of people who have made the wrong choice in this area or that area and through faithfulness to God and his faithfulness to us, that situation has been redeemed. Um, so it can have a good ending, but along the way, the process is usually much more difficult. (laughs) And so I think I would be very real about, you know, those difficulties and I would, you know, just keep in mind their age and <laughs> ask the Lord to give you wisdom as you reveal those things. So, I don't know. That's my idea. Anybody have a different idea? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. And keep it in mind, too, um, if you can imagine a square, and at at the bottom you have your baby, and, and you have you. So your control over them, is really high when they're a baby down here. But as they grow in age, your control goes down. So you've got a 
an X here. Okay. So, so they're growing up and you're trading your role as control in their life to influencer in their life. And so, um, it would depend on where on that continuum you are, but you know, as they get into their teen years, you can do less and less to control their actions. But if you have that relationship with them, you're doing more and more to influence them. And if they trust you and they found you to be trustworthy, then they'll come to you with those questions and ask you, you know, and, and so it's not bad. We, we want to trade control because eventually they have to be adults on their own, right? They have to make these decisions for themselves. Um, so I'd say, you know, when they're 11 and 12, you have the control and they're not driving and you can say, listen, no, you're grounded. You're staying here. You're not going, you know, you're not doing that. But as they get into 15 and 16 and they're driving, your ability to actually physically control them becomes very small. But your influence, if you've built that relationship, is is great. Um, so that, that would be my answer for that one. <laughs> All right. Just... This may be a recap a little bit. I don't know if we've said this before, but in dealing with attitude, um, I don't know about you, but I have three girls, so attitude is huge. And um, attitude is far more important than actions or education. Um, So we want to discipline when we discipline for bad attitudes, even more so than wrong actions. Um, so here's an example. A mother left her little girl to do some minor housework and the little girl decided, I want to bless my mom. So she went out and she got all the clothes off the, the, the line, whatever you call it, the the laundry line, clothesline. And she brought them in and she folded them and put them away. And so mom came home and she was so excited and she told her, look what I did, mom. And mom was like, yeah, that's great. Oh, but some of those clothes were not dry, but you know what? She didn't rail her daughter you know, she could see in her daughter's eyes that I did this because I love you, mommy. So she waited until the little girl went back outside to play when she went through the drawers and found the damp stuff and hung them back on the line. And then later she taught her daughter about damp clothes versus dry clothes. All right. So again, we had a, we have a child who did maybe the wrong thing. She didn't do the the right thing because she brought down damp clothes off the line. Right. But she had the right attitude. So obviously nobody, well, I shouldn't say that because I think there are people who (laughs) probably would go off about that, but we don't want to do that, right? She, she had a great attitude and she might've made a mistake, but again, we're looking at the heart here. So, um, we must certainly consider actions, but discipline should be concerned with a child's attitude. So what do we do when there's no disobedience, but the child's attitude is awful, what do we do then? (laughs) Beat them up? (laughs) Well, I will say this. If we wait uh, until a bad attitude turns into bad actions, then we're dealing with only symptoms and we're not really going to get at the heart of it because we're going to, at that point, be dealing with actions. Um, So the key is to know your child's heart and to guard it. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for it is the wellspring of life, or out of it flow the issues of life. And so it really is looking at, at the kid's attitude. I know lately I've been having this conversation with Mia because she will have a bad attitude. And Mia's a good girl. She's she's so good. And she's helpful and um, just a blessing, you know. But she's been in a funk a little bit lately and just upset about things. And so I'll go to her and I'll say, listen, what's the deal? 
Uh, that's what she does. Uh. <laughs> well, what's wrong? I don't know. You know, and so we have a conversation about it because she hasn't actually done anything wrong, but you can tell that there's an attitude issue there. And so how I've been addressing it with her lately is to say, well, listen, if something's wrong, you need to tell me about it. If something is wrong, I can't help you. We can't fix it unless you tell me what it is. But if nothing's wrong, you need to stop your attitude. If there's nothing wrong, stop. <laughs> it's ridiculous. So again, that's how I've been dealing with attitude lately with my oldest child. Now, again, we have different ages, different, you know, Lena and Lily would be a little different because they're four and six years old as opposed to nine years old. So you can't reason, you know, with Lily at four as you can with Mia at nine. But, um, but you do want to deal with attitudes because attitudes are important and they lead to the actions that we don't like. Um, attitude shows what's in the heart. So, um, we got a few more minutes here. I wanted to read a few other examples that I think you'll find humorous um, and sad at the same time. All right. So these are just cautions. This is a caution. This is another example from Michael Pearl. While I was teaching Bible class, my two daughters helped babysit a house full of children under five years old. One of the mothers returned to find a three-year-old daughter whining from being mistreated by a fellow under two. They all confirmed that the stumbling toddler had, in fact, provoked a Class A altercation without sufficient provocation. The older and physically superior little girl sat on the floor and turned the other cheek, only to have it walloped also. In her presence, the mother pitied the little girl and spoke critically of her assailant. My daughters watched the situation carefully and on several occasions observed him assaulting her. But as the nursery workers cracked down on the little mugger, he ceased his misdemeanors. Most of the attacks were actually the result of his stumbling while practicing his recently acquired skill of walking. The bright and otherwise sweet girl was very obedient, but she had developed a habit of exhibiting emotional weakness in order to get her way. Uh-oh. She whines about everything and seems to suffer out of proportion to her happy lot in life. The young mother has cultured this, this tendency. During the succeeding weeks, the mother would greet the daughter with a sympathetic inquiry as to her suffering at the hands of this 24-inch nursery stalker. The nursery workers became aware that the victim always gave an evil report. They made it a point to watch closely and were sure that on occasions when there was no conflict with the alleged assailant, the little girl still gave a report of being attacked. They observed her play happily until the mother arrived, at which time she would jump up and run into the arms of her sympathetic mother with whining tales of abuse. As the talk escalated and the stumbling tot's infamy grew, the mother more carefully questioned her daughter. It was becoming clear that the emotionally weak child, the one who was being assailed, thrived on playing the role of the abused. One night, the babysitter, the babysitters observed the little girl telling the boy, hit me, go on, hit me. When she finally persuaded him to reach out and strike her on the head, she went to one of the child care workers crying about the attack. This was repeated on several occasions. Then, when the protective mother arrived, the, the little girl had a tale of abuse to again make her the center of her mother's sympa uh, sympathy. On another occasion, when the little fellow was in the other room, the girl fell down crying of being struck by him. 
When the mother arrived and those in charge told her that her daughter had lied about being abused, she looked up and took the child's defense and denied that her daughter could lie. Okay, and then he goes on to tell what they did about it. But, okay, can you see how this is a problem, right? I mean, this is obvious to us all, but at the same time, this happens, right? So please, don't be one of those... (laughs) Don't be one of those mothers or grandmothers or whatever that your sweet little baby girl or sweet little baby boy can do no wrong and that everyone is out to get them and there's never any culpability on their part because that is not a child that anyone wants to be around. All right. So the next, so that would be, yes, finishing attitude, going on to emotional control. This is actually really important. So how do we teach emotional control? I think it starts when little Janie is toddling across the floor and stumbles. And what does mom do? Does mom run over to, oh, baby, oh, are you okay? My poor baby, are you hurt? (laughs) That's where it starts. Let me read you another quick story. I remember when I was only eight years old, my cousin performed a stunt for the entertainment of all the adults present. His younger brother was sitting on the floor playing happily when my cousin said, watch this. Speaking to the infant in a pitiful, compassionate voice, he said, oh, is the baby hurt? Poor thing. What did you do? Does it hurt? Show mama. Sure enough, my cousin's happy little brother puckered up, started crying, and made his way to his mother for emotional support. To the roar of the adults, she picked him up, told him it would be all right, brushed off the imaginary dirt, and sat him back on the floor to continue playing happily. This is not a child who is being conditioned to be in control of his emotions. And imagine this 18-month-old, 12-month-old, and another five years, 10 years, if, if this is the way that things continue. So for your children's own good, teach them to maintain control of their emotions. If you do not want to produce sissies who use adversity as a chance to get attention, then don't program them that way. And one of the writers posits this, and I don't know, but is it possible that those who are programmed to get attention when hurt will, when they are older, hurt themselves when they need attention? I don't know if that's true but I think it's a good thing to think about. All right, he gives another example about a child who had emotional control. When our first daughter was a young girl, maybe seven or eight, I looked up to see a brown recluse spider crawling along her neck. Their bite is very cruel indeed. A pound of flesh may rot out where one bites. My daughter had been thoroughly taught to trust and obey us implicitly. I said to her, don't move. She froze. Not a muscle twitched. Fear paled her eyes as she followed our intense stare and felt the creature creeping up her neck. I could see the rising compulsion in her to slap at it, to flee screaming. She stood perfectly rigid as I slowly approached, reached out, and carefully flicked the spider away. It was a wonderful sense of gratitude we shared for having trained her to maintain control of her emotions. So we see two opposite ends of the spectrum, right? One child who, or a couple different children, who are taught to feed their emotions and to um, use them to get what they want, and another one who was taught to not give in to her emotions, and even possibly her life was spared. I mean, brown recluse 
spiders are no joke. So we teach our children to, uh, to gain emotional control by not feeding emotional outbursts, whatever that may look like. We're not going to feed them. Um, you know, he, he gives several examples in the books of times when kids were actually hurt. But, you know, their children had been trained not to come in and, and show great emotionality. So sometimes at the end of the day, they'd come in with scraped and bruised knees, and he'd say, what happened there, killer? And they'd be like, oh, well, I took the turn too fast, but I think I got it now, you know? And so these are children who have been trained to not you know, be overly emotional. Of course, if someone's really hurt, there's a need for emotion. But we're talking about, you know, indulging our emotions in a way that's not healthy. Uh, and, and lastly, we're going to talk about self-indulgence. A child who grows up deprived of nothing is greatly handicapped in real life. Never consider your effluence to be an advantage to your children. It is a handicap for which you must compensate. Let me read that again. A child who grows up deprived of nothing is greatly handicapped in real life. Never consider your affluence to be an advantage to your children. It is a handicap for which you must accommodate. And, um, you know, I'm sorry, what? Being rich when raising children is not necessarily an advantage. Because children who have everything handed to them don't have to be creative. They come to be entitled. Now, this is not every child, but that's the danger. The danger is if you have a child who's spoiled, they will grow up to be spoiled. And I've actually, you know, many times I've prayed to the Lord, God, show me what to do. We We put a quote up last week that said, if you want good children, spend half as much money on them and twice as much time with them. And I think that's the key. I think when we have money, it's so easy to throw it at them and think that will make them happy. But that's not how character is built. And um, and I really believe that. I really believe that. And, you know, I'm a person who does not like to be broke. It's happened in my life before. I've been there, done that. Don't really want to go back there. But at the same time, I realize the value in the struggle for my children. And I would... I would do anything for them to have character. I would do anything for, um, for them to be built up in their faith. And if that means that I can't give them something that they need to look to God for, praise God, you know? That's not fun for me. I don't want to be there. But at the same time, I prefer their character over their comfort. And I think the Lord would say the same for us. He prefers our character over our comfort. And so I see very really, uh, very vividly how... Um, how riches, how money can, can be a detriment when trying to raise our, our children. Mm-hmm. That's really good. You're right. Yes. And I looked up several verses um, today that talked about money, and none of them say that money is evil. You know, they say the love of it, the desire for it, the chasing after it. And so I think that's where it comes in, when we place money in the wrong, in the wrong place. You know, money is a tool uh, to be used for God's glory. And um, 
when we use it in the wrong way, when we desire it in the wrong way, I think that's when we run into troubles. And you can, you can love money and be poor, right? <laughs> so, so praise the Lord. Well, I thank you once again for um, spending time with me. Again, please uh, be thinking of your questions, and hopefully you'll be able to make it to the panel discussion at the beginning of November if everything works out good. And um, next week we'll be talking about the why of disciplining our children. So uh, would anyone like to close? In? Jacob, would you like to close in prayer tonight?
I'm <laughs> 